Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you speak to us, and so we pray that you'll help us to hear you now. Um, please fill us with an understanding uh, that comes from this passage, but more than that, we pray that you'll help us to trust you more and that you'll deepen our desire to live for you and put you first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years back, I had a fellow come up to me at church and he said, I want to become a Christian. Now, I didn't know this guy. Um, and so I asked him, why is it that you want to become a Christian? And he said, well, I've been observing the people around me uh, in the area where I live who are Christians and there's something about them that's different and I want what they've got. And I asked him if he had any idea what a Christian was and he didn't. He didn't know much about the Bible at all. He'd never read through the Bible. So I suggested that he read one of the Gospels. Um, I've forgotten which one it was, possibly Matthew. And that he read a book by John Stott um, called Basic Christianity. And the plan was that we'd meet together once a week. He'd read a chapter of Basic Christianity and I'd read the chapter and we'd get back together and he would ask me questions from that chapter and we'd kind of... Uh, explore that and would build on it kind of week in week out and I prayed that by the time he got to the end of the book that he'd be ready to become a Christian well we did it for one week we did it for two weeks on the third week he said I finished the book and I'm ready to become a Christian so that was very exciting uh, but I tell you that because sometimes when we're dealing with Christian things it can be very difficult to work out what's actually at the core What's the basic message when it comes to Christian things? Churches are involved and Christians teach all kinds of different things. So how do you cut through that and get the basic message of Christianity? And uh, as I was looking at this passage over the last week or so, I think this is an excellent place to turn to get some basic Christianity sorted out. It asks a number of very fundamental questions. Um, who is Jesus? Who will build the church? Uh, what must the Messiah or the Christ do? What must a disciple or a follower of Jesus do? And why does it matter? And I want to take you through this passage and I'm going to be exploring each of these things. So join with me if you've got your hand out there. I encourage you to have it open. I've actually got the passage printed on the left-hand side. And there's a couple of quotes from the Old Testament that I'll reference as well. So let's just go through this together. The first question who is the Son of Man? Now, you'll notice in verse 13 that that's a question that Jesus is asking, broadly speaking. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man, it's, it's kind of an enigmatic way of speaking. It could be that Jesus is saying, um, who does one say that I am? Um, or a roundabout way of speaking of himself in the same way that, say, the king or the queen use a royal plural, um, just not a direct reference. It's quite likely that it means this human person. But it's got a much richer background than this. And if you look at the passage from Daniel chapter 7, you can read one of the most significant statements about the Son of Man in the Bible. So... In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, and he was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all nations and people of every language worshipped him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? You could look down to verse 16, where he makes it more specific, sorry, 15, and says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Clearly, he's relating Son of Man to I himself, but it has this rich texture. And remember, Jesus comes onto the scene preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And right through the last few chapters, he's been giving parables, stories about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And when you go back to Daniel, you have a picture of this human figure who comes to the Ancient of Days, who is God seated on the throne and is given the right to rule over people of all nations for all eternity. So there's layer upon layer under what Jesus is asking. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, there's a word on the street, probably a prophet, maybe a figure like Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Elijah or so on. What about you, Jesus says? He now points to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter, Simon Peter, answers, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, the Messiah is a Hebrew term, which in Greek was the Christ. So you've got Christ, Messiah, two ancient languages. What does it mean in English? It literally means the anointed one the anointed king. And the most significant anointing that took place was of the king of Israel. So you get people like Solomon, like King David being anointed. And the promise is made, and we're going to read a little bit from this in what follows, to David in 2 Samuel 7, that David's descendant would be the Christ, the Messiah, the king, who would be the son of God, who would rule over an eternal kingdom forever. So what Peter is saying, he's picking up on this expectation. He's announcing that the fulfilment of this promise to David has come about. You're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. The Messiah and the son of the living God are two terms that are tied together in 2 Samuel 7. It's not simply saying that you are a divine child. The son of God was the kingly, expected, promised saviour. And Jesus says, <clears throat> blessed to you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So we're on solid ground here. Now there's a, a, a climax in Matthew's gospel. The question has been asked again and again and again and again, who is this? Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is it that can heal the sick? Who is it that can feed the 5,000? Who is it that can do these incredible things? Who is it who teaches with such authority? Here's the answer. The one that God promised. That's who it is. He's the kingly figure from Daniel 7. He's the promised Messiah King from 2 Samuel 7. In other words, God is keeping his promises and God has revealed that truth to Peter. And Peter is the mouthpiece. And Jesus says, yep, you've got it. That's a good start, right? Who is Jesus? Who is the Son of Man? Well, he is the king who was promised, who's going to rule an eternal kingdom. First question answered. But then 
Listen to this next paragraph. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, when you read over that, does it sound a little bit to you like he's changing gears? You know, all the emphasis has been on who am I? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus changes topics. Well, let me tell you, I'm, I'm going to build a church and there's stuff that's going to happen and stuff that's not going to happen. But he's not changing topics. Now, when you look at 2 Samuel 7, look at the quote there over at point two, who will build the church. And this is the promise to David. When your days are over, King David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, the Messiah, the Christ, he had a job description. And his job description was to build a house. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at 2 Samuel 7, and then you follow that through 2 Samuel into Kings, you'll discover that it's David's son Solomon who builds a house. A house made out of stone, a house with precious metals and cedar and so on. It's a temple. It's a place to meet God. But that is really not the house that's intended because that house is already gone. That house is not an eternal house. The house that the eternal king will build is not one of bricks and mortar or even fabulous stone, cedar and gems. It's a house which is a dynasty. It's, it's a succession. It's, it's a gathering. It's a people. It's a church. You see, when Jesus is recognised to be the Messiah... He goes on to say, and yes, I will do what the Messiah was promised he would do. I will build my church. That's his promise. Hasn't changed topics. He's just said, you've got it and I'm going to do it. Now, I'm going to ask Matt to come down the front here for a minute because I want to explain something to us that I think can be a little bit tricky because we get tied in knots sometimes over what it means for Jesus to say, and I tell you that you are Peter... And on this rock, I will build my church. Um, the, the difficulty for us, I think, is that we're not quite sure what the rock is that's in mind. Now, a little bit of background here. In the original language, the Greek, Peter is Petros. Petros. Um, and we know that from an early stage in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Peter um, is another name for Simon. Now, Jesus isn't giving him the name here. He's already had that name. You can read it back in chapter 4 and on many occasions since. In fact, in chapter 4, he's described as Simon, who's known as Peter. Let me put this into Aussie. This is Simon, whose nickname is Rocky. Um, that's kind of what it's saying. You're the rock, right? And then he says, I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, Many people look at this and they go, you're Peter and on this rock, I know that Petros means rock, therefore the church will be built on Peter. And there's good reasons to kind of think that. But I think there's also better reasons not to think that. Let me explain. 
Um, yeah, you will come into play, Matt. Thank you. And, and I tell you that you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. In the original, there's two different words for rock. Um, the first, Petros, can mean a stone. Now, Petra can as well, but Petra can also mean bedrock or foundation. Now, there's a little word there which I think leads us to understand that he's probably not saying that Peter is the foundation of the church. Because it would be like this. You are Peter, right? You're Peter. And on this. Now, what is the this? This rock, I will build my church. The, the nature of the word this kind of points away. Now, I'll give you an example of this. And this is where Matt, my esteemed helper, is, uh, is going to illustrate. You are Matt, right? Now that, that's M-A-T-T, -T, is that correct? Right, and on this mat, I will give my talk. Now, as surely as you are Matt, on this mat, I will give my talk. You see, it's, it's logical that one word is being used as a foundation to make a point with another word. You can sit down now, you've done a great job. Thank you, let's give him a hand. All right. I was a bit worried that my mat took off earlier. I, I had my eyes on Matt Cohen and um, I had to search around for another mat. Thank you for standing in, um, being the understudy. It must be a, a tough gig when the understudy has to perform on the first night, but there you go. All right, so I think what Peter is, uh, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, um, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this foundation I will build my church. So what is the foundation? Well, I think it's most logical that it's what Peter has just said. That you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and you will build this church. And Jesus says, that's the foundation. Now, we, we may not agree on every little nuance of this, but Jesus' point is clear, and let's not miss it. Who's going to build the church? Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. He's the one who's going to do it. And isn't that great news? It's not a human project. It's a divine project. The building of the church can look pretty insignificant at times. We are a small gathering. Look around us, there's probably 100 people. There's 4,000 people in Bonnie Hills. There's another 7,000 in Lake Cadai. There's a few more down in Dumbogan and Lauriton and a whole bunch up in Port Macquarie. We're not that significant, are we? Well, yes, we are. Because we are what Jesus is building. And even death, the gates of Hades, was the place of the dead. That won't stand in the way. And Jesus, as he gives this good news, is going to have his name proclaimed through all history and keep building this church. Even today, we see the church growing. I did a little bit of research for this sermon to work out how many Christians there are today. How many churches have been built? How big is the church that Jesus is building? Well, there are various estimates Many say that there are 2.3 to 2.6 billion people practising some form of Christianity in the world today. That's pretty big. I take that number with a grain of salt. Ah, salt. I like that. 
The, um, see, the reality is many people would tick a box to say Christian, or the government might say, well, they're not Muslim, so they must be Christian. Or they'd look across and, and have some kind of sociological way of describing Christian, other religions, and so on. But what about those who are genuinely following Jesus? Well, there's an organisation called Operation World. Some of you will know of them because they produce uh, a, a book. It comes out every few years which tells you what the state of the church is in every country in the world and encourages us to pray. Their estimates are that in 2021, there was 546 million Christians, 7.9% of the world's population. Another organisation in the United States actually is a little more conservative, saying it believes that there are 386 million Christians in the world today. And a French researcher declares that there are 660 million evangelical Christians in the world. And by evangelical, he means believing the evangel, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is the saviour, we might say born again Christians. So somewhere between 380 and 660 million Christians in the church. Can you imagine Peter taking in what Jesus is saying, if he was to say, you know, one day, Peter, there'll be 660 million Christians gathered on this planet Earth. In fact, my understanding is that the Hebrew didn't even have a number for a million. You just had to keep adding other numbers and multiplying them. See, God has done an incredible work through Jesus. It's interesting too, by the way, to, to um, explore some of the details as to where those numbers are. 66 million in China, 58 million in Nigeria, 5 million in the UK, 3 million in Australia. Well, Jesus is building his church as he said he would. The next thing. What must the Messiah do? Well, from that time on, Jesus began, I'm in verse 21, to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. There's an important word in this that gets used twice. He must go to Jerusalem. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus has... Um, a, a, a divine imperative to do what he's going to do. Um, because Jesus understands that he's putting into place God's will. Remember in the garden, for those of you who remember the account of Jesus in the garden, he prays, if there's any other way, please take this cup of your judgment from me. Not my will, though, but your will, he says. Well, this is God's will. You can see that an example of this in the quote underneath, point three, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, this is the servant, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will prolong his offspring, sorry, see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Isaiah 53. The promise is that one would come and die for the sake of the people. And that is God's will that that happen. 
Jesus comes to do his father's will. That is to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus comes to stand in our place, to take the punishment that we deserve. And Jesus is following God's will in doing this. And God says to him, he will be raised on the third day. Now, Peter will not have it. Extraordinary, isn't it? Peter has just spoken up. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed to you. God has revealed it. And then as soon as Jesus says what the Messiah must do, Peter, verse 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Then Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What strikes you in that statement that Jesus speaks to Peter? Is, is it the word Satan? It's probably the thing that stood out for me over many years. But I think there's something else that should stand out as well. Get behind me, Satan. See, what's Jesus telling Peter to do? Well, you can read in what follows. And I will. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Don't get in front of me. Get behind me, Satan. See, Peter's got it so wrong that it is of Satan. But he's got the posture wrong. He's got the position wrong. He's in the wrong place. He's trying to lead Jesus away from the cross. He should be following Jesus to the cross. That's what we see. Because the Messiah must suffer. Now, we've been singing a song, Christians, over the last 20 or 30 years, The Servant King. Some of you know that song? A little bit of it, yeah. The Servant King. It talks about the one who will rule and the one who will die being one and the same. That is a massive thing to get your head around. And it was a massive thing for Peter and first century Jews to get their head around. See, they had a promise that a Messiah king would come who would rule over everything. There was another prophecy that a servant would come and die for the sins of the many. What they didn't realise at this point was that that was one and the same prophet. That was one and the same Messiah who would die. The suffering servant is the Messiah King. The Christ, who is the Son of the living God, will pour out his life to save many. It's an extraordinary thing. And the disciples take a while to get their head around that. Peter kind of shows us that he hasn't got it straight up. But, you know, even after the resurrection, even as Jesus is poised to go back to heaven, they say, is it now time to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still haven't got it. But they will when the Spirit comes and makes it clear. So then what must a, what must a disciple do if Jesus is going to the cross and going to be raised from the dead, what must a disciple do? Well, verse 24 spells it out. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, a disciple is like an apprentice of the master. 
He's one who is learning from the teacher. He's one who is walking in the footsteps, um, sometimes physically, but deep down, metaphorically, walking in the footsteps of the leader. So Jesus is saying to Peter and the other disciples that you, if you are to be a disciple, actually have to come after Jesus. And where is Jesus headed? Well, he's headed to his death. And so he says, you need to be headed to your death with me. That is, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Taking up your cross was not putting on a piece of jewellery. It, it was bearing a crossbeam that said you're about to be executed. In other words, Jesus is saying you need to give up your old life and find new life with me. And when he says you are to deny yourself, he's not saying you need to deny yourself something like chocolate for Lent. Um, you're not to deny yourself a, a, a better TV or a nicer car or something. This He's literally saying you need to deny yourself. In other words, he's saying you need to submit. You need to put me first. I mean, who does Jesus think he is? Well, he knows who he is. He's the king. And there's only one posture to come to the king. Submission. So a disciple is one who gives up their goals, ambitions, priorities, their life and gives it to Jesus and follows Jesus. And why does it matter? Well, the last paragraph makes it abundantly clear for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. See, the economy of salvation is contrary to what we think. People are consistently misunderstanding the gospel. People consistently think if you work hard and do good, then God will accept you. But Jesus says, no, you need to give up your life for his sake. And if you lose your life for his sake, then you'll actually get life back, life eternal. It's not what you do, it's what you give up. And you can't give up anything less than yourself. And where does the rubber hit the road with that? Well, it means that when there's a conflict of priorities, Jesus and you, you've got to submit and let Jesus rule. When you believe that Jesus is saying you've got to head this way, or when the word of God makes it clear that you should do this or do that, you need to follow God's word and not your own passions and desires. See, there's a, a giving up of self. And it's so important. See, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world for themselves and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You see, the equation is just so clear. You might hang on to your own selfish desire to be number one here in this life, but you do that to your eternal peril. But if you're willing to concede that you're not number one in this life, if you put Jesus number one, then you do that to your eternal joy. That's the comparison. And we've got to stop looking at life in the light of this world alone in terms of 70, 80 years. Because that's what our neighbours are doing. 
They think in terms of bucket lists because that's all they have. They're thinking of all that they can pack into, whether it's possessions or money or security or experiences, into this life because they have no confidence in a life to come. We don't need to. The Apostle Paul made it clear in 2 Corinthians that he could be beaten up, he could be stripped bare, he could be thrown into prison, he could be shipwrecked many times, he could be misunderstood, he could be um, left within an inch of his life and it didn't matter because he is confident in the resurrection. Without the resurrection, such suffering, such following Jesus, bearing our cross, giving up everything for the sake of the cross makes no sense. That's why I am absolutely, I'm, I'm just so confused when I hear church leaders, even archbishops, saying, I don't believe that there is a resurrection. I think, what on earth are you living for? No, friends, if there is no resurrection, then we may as well pack it in because... All we have is this life. And you may as well make the most of this meaningless life that there is. But if Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead, and I think there is abundant evidence that Jesus lived. There's more evidence, by the way, that Jesus lived than that Julius Caesar lived by a factor of hundreds. And yet I don't see people wandering around disputing that Julius Caesar was a person, a real person, an historical person who walked this earth and, and did things and impacted other people. But some will do that to Jesus. They put Jesus in the same basket as the Easter Bunny and Father Christmas. But he doesn't belong there. Any reputable historian, no matter what religion or none that they believe will tell you that there is very good evidence for the life of Jesus. But it doesn't stop with his life. Because there's also very good evidence for the crucifixion of Jesus. It's easier to take the Gospels at face value that he was executed on a cross for what was believed to be treason than to come up with another explanation. And the Gospels and 2 Corinthians and other pieces of history complement this belief that he was executed with his promise that he would be raised on the third day. Jesus kept his word. And the disciples were so persuaded by that that they went on to preach this message and to die for it. And those who followed after that message went on to preach it, and many to die for it. And Christians have continued to do that for two millennia, to the point where conservatively there's over 350 million born-again Christians on our planet today, maybe a lot more. The greatest conspiracy of all time or just the raw facts? Well, you work it out. And I think there's very good evidence that this is the truth. And if it's the truth, you've got a heck of a lot to lose by ignoring it. And absolutely everything to gain by trusting it. Why does it matter? Well, because Jesus says it does. 
And he says it matters in the light of there being a day of judgment. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he'll reward each person according to what they've done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, just in finishing, I know that that's a little tricky. What does that mean, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? Because Jesus is making a promise, and we can be pretty confident that everyone who heard him say it is dead. Unless we've not quite understood what coming into his kingdom meant. See, we read that and probably think, well, that means Jesus coming to us, right? Second coming. But let's go back again to these words in Daniel. Top of the page. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Where's he coming to? He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Our first read is to think, well, obviously he's coming to us. Now that could be because we think we're the centre of the universe. But in Daniel 7, he is coming to the Ancient of Days, God his Father, on the throne, where he is given the kingdom to rule over. And some of those that were with him did not taste death before they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. One did taste death. His name was Judas. Well, I hope that this has helped you to get a, a clearer handle on basic Christianity. I hope that it's helped you to understand who Jesus is, what he's come to do, how he's come to do it, and what he wants from us and why that matters. And I hope that that gives confidence to those of you who believe these things already. I hope it's given cause for questions and exploration from those who are perhaps not so sure. And if perchance you've come along today for some other reason and this is quite foreign to you, I hope it starts a journey where you can find out the best news that there has ever been. Thank you.